people that are good at growth are good at problem solving. They have systems for solving conversion and scale problems. And that's a real differentiator. And sure, like tactics and and teardowns and you know the latest hacks and stuff, that's sometimes a piece of that. But those that are exceptional have systems. Look for someone who's been where you are hoping to go. Even if they're not in your discipline, you can still learn a lot from them. And you let them know what you're looking for. Just be upfront about it. Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. One thing I've noticed about marketing as a profession is that there are no defined career paths, like at all. I think there are a few reasons for this. One, there are very few credentials that are required to get a gig in marketing. This is awesome because it allows anyone to acquire skills and to make a name for themselves without unnecessary gatekeepers. And two, it's a rapidly expanding profession with new channels, techniques, products, and strategies being tested every single day. But just because there are a lot of opportunities doesn't mean that it's easy sailing, especially if you don't have a mentor or boss to help show you the ropes. My guest today has had a similar realization. Pulling from his experiences, he teaches other growth marketers how to navigate their careers and do great work in a relatively nascent category within marketing. He's the founder of Delivering Value and is a growth marketer who's been part of scaling HubSpot, Wistia, and PostScripts. I'm pleased to welcome Andrew Kaplan to the show. Hey, Andrew, welcome to Top of Mind. Hey, thanks for having me. I am pretty new to the whole world of growth marketing. I come from a content background. And so it's been cool to find people like you who have kind of interesting backgrounds, um, have worked at really cool companies, but you're also kind of picking up new pieces as you go from job to job, because yes, there are certain levers that you can pull, but at the end of the day, every company is just built differently and sells to different people. You had a tweet from a few days ago that had a kind of a cool point that I haven't experienced, but I think you could talk a little bit more to, which was saying that growth marketers are really great at collecting data and that data helps you like become part of the decision-making process. But once you're in the room, data is an easy way to bore people. Can you tell me a little bit about what, what prompted you to write that? A personal story. So I used to be responsible for sharing a bunch of data to a senior team. And I had a reputation of being like the self-service data guy at Wistia, which is a high volume business, product-led company, millions of website visitors on a monthly basis, tens of thousands of new installs. It's a big data set. And so I was kind of the data guy. And every single month we did a debrief. How did this last month go? And I would always pull up charts and spreadsheets to tell my story. Here's how it went. We saw installs went up, but traffic went down. So our conversion rate did this and blah, 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 blah. And boss pulled me aside after one of them. And he said, look, you're doing a good job of presenting this data, but you're not actually having the influence that I think you could have. At this level, share data to make your point, but drive it home with stories. Talk about the customers. Don't just talk about the churn number this month. Highlight two 
that are really, really interesting and what we could do differently based on what you saw. And it just really resonated with me. I always thought that data was the tool, the currency for me to get more influence. But over time, what I learned is that data got me in the room. Data got me a little bit of credibility, but really what our executive team, our C-level team cared about was the people, the stories, the accounts behind them. And so it's a tricky thing because in the growth space, it's all about numbers and conversion rates and spreadsheets. But the reality is we kind of lose sight of the bigger picture, which is that we're just here to help people. Data is just a tool to measure the success or the failure of that. But at its core, that's what I want. I want to help people understand tools under and experience value and hopefully do it again and again and again. Like that's what gets me excited. And now you're teaching people how they can better, be better at growth as well, but not from like the tactical stance, but more from the cr- career trajectory and kind of these, these tips that you've learned by being in the boardroom and helping people to understand what growth does. Is that right? I try to teach more like systems and frameworks. The growth space is full of tactics and tools and tear down. Like that's what everyone is talking about. But what I find is that the people that are really skilled at driving systematic growth have tools and processes that they use. I shouldn't say tools like, uh, like software tools, but they have techniques, tactics, stuff that they can wash, rinse, repeat on many different problems to drive success over time and aren't just one hit wonders. And so that's what I've tried to learn. I've tried to learn things that I can take and do over and over and over again. And that's kind of how I think about growth. Like people that are good at growth are good at problem solving. They have systems for solving conversion and scale problems. And that's a real differentiator. And sure, like tactics and and teardowns and you know the latest hacks and stuff, it's sometimes a piece of that. But those that are exceptional have systems. And so that's what I've focused on learning myself. That's try that's what I try to teach other folks as well. And it's kind of like the crux of my my thesis. Can you give me an example of one of these? Maybe maybe two things. A use case for when a system could be useful. And then if there is a system that you know of that can help someone in that situation. So prioritization is a really good one. So a common thing that happens is when you're at like a mid-level in your career, it's all about going fast and doing what someone else suggested to you, right? If you're at a mid-level in your career, you're maybe a marketing manager, growth marketing manager, something like that. Somebody above you says, hey, what do you think about this idea? And you go, yeah, great idea. I'm going to do it tomorrow. And they get all excited. And then in two weeks, you say, hey, I did it. Here's what happened. It worked out really well. And what can happen is as things, as you work at companies and you scale is as you get in the room with more and more loud people, influential people, people that are more senior than you, you end up in this position where they're always sharing ideas. There's always cool ideas coming at you. And what you learn is that your job isn't to do the thing. It's to evaluate if it's the right thing to do. And so, again, I learned this at Wistia where one time our our CEO, Chris Savage, came over and he was sitting casually at a desk near myself and my manager at the time. And he said, hey, what do you guys think about this? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll do it tomorrow. It's a great idea. And he said, no, 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 dude. I want to be crystal clear. Your job is to evaluate the ideas. My job is to get the idea out of my head into the right person. So don't do it because I'm the CEO. In fact, you probably shouldn't do it if I'm the CEO (laughs) and you don't think it's a good idea. That's what we want. We want you to know if it's the right thing to do. And so it kind of changed my perspective. And so it shifted my focus from understanding like how to execute quickly and like with, uh, you know, with some accuracy. And I shifted to how do I evaluate ideas? How do I get inputs from really, really smart people? Because who cares where the idea comes from? I just want to get really skilled at 
and picking the right one. And so I picked up, I didn't make it up. Sean Ellis is like the famous growthhackers.com founder. He came up with this, this framework called ICE, where I is impact, C is confidence, and E is the amount of effort required. And you can kind of take any given idea, rank it on a one to five scale of how, how much impact, how much confidence, how much effort do you, you know, will it take to execute on this idea? And you can kind of just rank things that way. And so then my job shifted from chief executor to like chief prioritizer, which is just kind of an interesting evolution of your career. So I think that that's really, really impactful. And then there's some conversion frameworks as well, as you start to think about, you know, new user onboarding and, you know, website conversion rate optimization and things like that, that we can get into separately. But prioritization is like a really easy one, I feel like for folks to wrap their heads around. Mm. And that sounds like it's something that only comes when you kind of move up the, the ladder and go from kind of being a practitioner to a manager or like a, a strategist? I think so. I mean, at some point in time, especially if you work in an early stage company, which is the vast majority of my experience are working with relatively early companies. At some point, it's your job to figure out if it's the right thing to do. And so when you're first hired, it's, hey, do this thing. Let's put together a roadmap of cool things. And then as you progress, it's, here's what I think we should do. Here's the system that I'm organizing. Here's how I want to drive towards success. Here's how I'm thinking about roadmaps and things like that. And you kind of just shift from being more reactive to proactive Mm -hmm. when it comes to things like communication and roadmap development and driving towards success and stuff like that. And I just think that that's a natural evolution as your career goes. Part of career growth is changing new gigs. And it's it's always a difficult it's always a intense transition, no matter how great the team is you're leaving or going to, and it involves a ton of different emotions. What is something that you've noticed that can set you up for success in your, maybe the first month of working at a new gig in a growth position? We'll talk about that specifically, but I think most people can kind of take this these these ideas and apply it to whatever industry or, or position they're in. But in that first month, like you're not going to be telling the CEO, no, I'm not doing that yet. Right. That that comes with a little bit of um, respect in the company. What does the first month look like to you? I think the first month is really three things. One, you want to make sure that you've gotten a solid foundation, like relationship wise with important stakeholders. So if you're in a marketing role, it's probably figuring out who are the people that you're going to be working with often and how can you begin your relationship with them? And obviously there's a little bit of like a, you know, mix of personal and professional stuff there. You know, you want to get to know the people behind the you know, behind the title and things like that. But you also want to take that time to really align on how do you view my role? How do you see us collaborating down the road? How do you like to communicate? How should I think about success in my role? What are the cultural landmines I should avoid here? Things like that. It's using, it's approaching the relationship with intent. And what I also like to do with those, uh, or like my advice for folks starting a new role is ask those people what the quick wins are if they were in your shoes. And then you can start to build a little bit of a backlog kind of during your first two weeks even and starting to get a little bit of momentum, which is key. So I think about stakeholders and then that backlog of quick wins as you kind of get going and you start to think about some of the stuff going on at the company and where you want to make your impact. And then really, I think that first month is all about learning. What do you need to learn to be effective in your role? And there's a few categories you want to learn about the company and its background and, you know, the vision and mission and the competitors in your space and all that kind of stuff, where are they headed? And then I also think you want to learn about the conversion levers. If you're in like a marketing or growth role, you know, what makes people buy, what makes them churn, what stops people from installing today, what would 
entice them to stay around for a long, long time, all that kind of stuff. But you can start to think about what, what do you need to know to be effective? And I guess in addition to some of those things, you want to understand how the company operates today. How does work happen? Do they have sprints? Are there important meetings where you get alignment and input? What are the checkpoints between having some crazy idea and executing it? Are there multiple rounds of revisions and input, or is it just something where you should pick an idea and go for it and somebody will tell you if you're in the wrong direction? And so I, I've learned that it's all about clarity. For people that start new roles and are really, really effective right off the bat, they usually have a plan or they're, you know, they're, they're just smart and they figure it out intuitively, but they, they get clarity on what their job is, what success looks like, and what they need to know to achieve it. And those that don't do that, sometimes they flounder and they don't work out or it takes them a longer time to get there. And so I think that's like a big lever. Mm. As someone who joined a new company three weeks ago, I can totally see that uh, clarity is a big one. Like, wh- who do I talk to when I have an idea? Like, what? how do ideas get back? like cataloged and then how do I execute and what am I responsible for? Like all those things can make your first month very smooth or an absolute nightmare if you're just like, I just don't feel like I've done anything and I've been here a month already. Like that's not a great place to be. Well, everyone wants to come in and and like build momentum and make a big impact right off the bat, but you can't do that without the right foundation in place. And I just feel like, especially if you're at like a mid-level, a huge part of your job in the first 30 days is leaning over to the person next to you and going, look, this is a super, a super stupid question, but can you just tell me blah, 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 and whatever that is. And you know, in this remote environment, it's a little trickier. You kind of have to be a little bit more vulnerable to reach out and say that stuff over Slack and things like that. But I just think that that's normal and that's expected. And you should lean into that and feel not embarrassed, but empowered that by asking all these questions, you're getting the right foundation that you know will enable you to go faster down the road. And that's what you're trying to do. Yeah, I was I was kind of curious about how you've seen workplaces change with uh, it being remote. Like, do are a lot of these frameworks more valuable now that that you kind of need to be at, better at communicating in in kind of like asynchronously, whether it's an over Slack being like, I need you to answer these three questions rather than kind of uh, sitting around like the conference table just kind of shooting the shit. Yeah, for sure. I mean. It makes it a little harder, I guess, to do some of the collaborative brainstorming, sitting around the table, hey, let's riff on this idea thing, because the way that people talk isn't with that awkward half a second delay on Zoom that we're just kind of getting used to over time. And it's <laughs> mm-hmm. a little bit more, you know, when ideas are flying around, it's this and oh, what if we did it in this way and blah, blah, blah. And so replicating that digitally is a little tricky for sure, but definitely can be done. We've been doing it, uh, you know, PostScript, we did it a whole bunch with Google Sheets where we're on a Zoom call. I think the main difference is that you just have to get exceptional at over-communicating or figure out how to over-communicate. And that if it feels like you're telling the same people the same message six different ways, it's probably still not enough is what I've learned. And so it's all about documenting and reiterating where to go. If you if you aren't sure, again, all this information lives here. We had a meeting, we made these decisions. Here's what they are as a recap. It's a lot of that kind of stuff. And but I think that's good. You know what I mean? Like if you're at a high growth company and there's people that are joining the team anyways, they're coming in with no context and no background. And so I just feel like even documenting stuff for your future team is, is like, good use of your time. I don't know if this is necessarily a good way to do it or not. It's just a way of doing it. But I've now written these new standard operating procedures. And I'm like, I'm the new guy, but I'm the one writing them. The feedback I get back from those are so useful because they say, 
oh, that's that's great, but we've had trouble with that in the past. Why don't you add an extra step for redundancy and what blah, blah, blah. And that all of a sudden makes me understand the culture differently as well, because I'm kind of writing the recipe book that like the, the, the team has already made the cake. And now I'm kind of like eating piece by piece being like, I, I think I know what ingredients go in there. And they say, no, no, it needs a little bit more flour or whatever. I don't know if that analogy works at all, but that was what it feels like. No, I feel like it really resonates with me because I think a lot of times people that are, to, you know, to go further on your analogy, the best cooks oftentimes can't explain it. It's intuitive. They just kind of know. And, it, you know, to go back to being at a company, people just kind of intuitively know if you've been at a place for a while. Oh, if you want to do that, you do this. And then you, and it just kind of, you just do this thing. But if you're brand new, you're like, look, I, I need like, that's like 11 steps right there. Let me see if I can break it out. And then you can give me feedback and tell me if it's the right thing. And sometimes that helps the chef right? When they see it written out, then they can react to it. They can iterate on it. And it's a totally different thing to go zero to one than it is to tinker and make that one, you know, two, you know, 2.0, 3.0, something like that. And so I think it's helpful on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. When I was looking for my last job and I was doing some job searching, I couldn't help but notice that there were a ton of growth marketing open roles, but they were specific. They were higher level. They were a lot of head of growth or sort of equivalent leadership positions. Why do you think there is such an availability for these positions right now? I think it's two things. One, the growth space is exploding. Like the rise of or popularity of product-led growth as a concept has made people with this background who are used to the growth approach and just working at companies that have a product-led go-to-market uh, strategy, really enticing and really interesting for companies. And they all want to hire someone who has experience doing it, making some of the mistakes already so that they can come in and be effective off the jump. For those so, who may have never heard of product-led, can you give a quicker explanation of what that is? Yeah. Product-led is kind of, I sort of think about it as e-commerce for software companies. So there's this movement of companies where you can buy their software without ever going through the traditional Hey, let me get on the phone with the sales rep and I'm going to get a, I'm going to talk to an SDR. Then I'm going to get passed to an AE. They're going to give me a demo. And then at the end, they'll tell me the price. And after that, I'll decide if I want to buy it. Contrast that with MailChimp, right? You go to MailChimp.com. All the pricing is listed. You see a plan that works really well for you. You can click it, buy it and be a customer in five minutes. So that is kind of the concept of product-led growth, which is that the product ultimately is the main growth lever over time. As you get more users, they refer more other users, it leads to additional customers, and you kind of get this engine that continues to build momentum. And what has happened is it's really a balance. So even a company, well, I don't know if MailChimp has a sales team. I assume that they do, but the vast majority, Wistia is a great example where the vast majority of Wistia customers buy without ever talking to a sales rep. But there's a small percentage, let's call it 15%, that aren't going to buy something without talking to someone. Either they have custom questions or they're too big and they don't fit perfectly into one of the plans and they want to ask some custom questions or maybe try to negotiate a high volume discount and they want to talk to someone and that's great. And so someone like myself comes in and really you know the crux of our job is to build the one to many engine to figure out what things and what experiences will entice people to convert and then also how do you balance where to send a lead when they sign up for your product for the first time? Should they go into the self-service funnel or should they go to a sales rep? How do you how do you look at a lead and see where they should go? In a best case scenario, you send them to the right place and it increases their likelihood to convert. In the worst case scenario, 
you send one to the wrong place and either you leave them hanging or you end up inserting all this additional process when someone would have just bought anyways. And so it's just sort of this balancing thing to figure out the right, you know, the right mix of the two. Gotcha. So I've seen a lot of these product led led companies kind of come come onto the scene. So you were saying that there's a lot more of them is kind of one, one reason why there's such a demand for those leadership roles. And I think I interrupted you before you said the second point there. No, no, it's good context. So it's definitely the rise in popularity of product-led growth. And then the other, the other challenge, like the reason why I think a lot of them stay open outside of just not having enough supply in the market for the demand at these startups is that a lot of really early stage companies know that they want to build you know, for this future go-to-market model with this product-led environment. And so they want to hire a head of growth right off the bat. Mm. And I think that there's a little bit, I wrote about this the other week, I think there's a little bit of a misalignment there where someone like myself, I don't want to go somewhere that doesn't have a little bit of volume. Like I just know my skill set. I know what the job will be. I am much, much more effective and interested in going to a place that already has some signs of product market fit so that I can help them not go zero to one, but help them optimize that one to be really, really effective. And then layer on some other channels to kind of pour gasoline on the whole thing and and like really get a nice engine humming versus what a lot of these really early stage companies need is they just need to go zero to one. They need a basic tech stack. They need some best practices to convert in place. They need someone who can really be in the weeds inside of like the ad platforms and in the A-B testing tools and in the marketing automation software. They need someone really playing with the dials. And so in my opinion, I think a head of type position, a head of type candidate isn't actually the right fit for them. And that's why they're not getting the roles filled. And I think that they'd be a little bit more, I think a better fit for them would be more of like a mid-level person a growth marketing manager, a growth marketer with, you know, between three and eight years experience, someone who can go in, who knows enough about the strategy and best practices to just go really, really fast, but let them get in, build a bunch of stuff, zero to one, hook them up with someone like myself with some mentorship, or maybe hire a fractional CMO or chief growth officer or something like that. Someone who can help point them in the right directions and put some guardrails on who knows what success looks like. But I just don't think that these companies are aligned with what a head of growth would be looking for at that stage. And I think that's why a lot of them are still open. Mm. An analogy that I've heard someone say that I, I liked was that those kind of early stage marketing gigs are kind of like being a plumber. Like you have to put all the tubes together at first before you can start sending water through it. And so it sounds like the intent is eventually to be just ch- chugging along and everything's working great. And you're all of a sudden a huge overnight success, but it's, likely taking you seven or eight years to get to that point. And that's like seven or eight years of testing and and needing to get your hands dirty and and find the the right fit. And so hiring a, a senior more senior person, they've done they've been there, they've done it, but you probably won't get they probably won't join you because they they're looking for their next challenge. It's not like they just want to join a startup just for fun. Totally. And I feel like in general, a core tool that I use if I'm going to evaluate a new role is if I'm talking with a new company, regardless of the stage, for me to understand if it's a good fit for me, if it's going to be a high growth company, even if it's not today, but if I think it's going to grow into that, I'm going to ask a bunch of questions about their funnel. And if your company is so new that your funnel is like, either you don't have the answers and you don't know some of the core pieces, right? Traffic, installs, activated accounts, purchases. Like if you've got a data gap in there and you don't know what it is, to me, that indicates, oh, wow, this is a super, super early stage company. Or if 
your conversion rates are really low at any one stage in the funnel, it kind of indicates to me that you probably don't have product market fit yet. And it's going to be hard for me to optimize for high volume growth in that environment where you're still figuring out the right ideal customer profile, you're still kind of figuring out the positioning. Maybe even you're still figuring out like what the product is and like kind of the core value it provides. In my opinion, those things need to be in place before I'm really interested in coming on board. Because what I want to do is I want to get in the weeds. I want to look at the funnel. I want to think about segments. I want to think about channels that I can layer on in addition to what's already working. And it's just too early to do a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. Are there any other questions or or kind of areas that you would observe of a new company? Say you're interviewing for them. Are there any other red flags or, or good things that you should be looking for? Yeah. I mean, I'm also looking for people, you know, understanding like the team that's in place today and like their skill set involved. I, I don't want to, ideally, I want to go somewhere where I've already got a few other folks who are focused on the problems surrounding mine. Either they're on the marketing team or they're on the product team, but they kind of understand the approach that I'm going to be championing, championing mm-hmm. when I come in, asking a lot of questions, trying to break through plateaus, maybe running a few tests, but someone who welcomes that, not someone who's going to hold on to it tightly and feel defensive. And so I'm looking for a mindset. Uh, and a willingness to try new ideas when I'm interviewing at a company like that. And I'm looking for it both with the founding team, if it's an early stage company, and if it's a little bit later stage, I'm looking for that with who I think my partners and stakeholders are going to be. So I think about some of that kind of stuff when it comes to fit. And then the other thing to look at is NPS. NPS is kind of like the hidden one that people don't talk about as much, but ideally you want, you want a customer, you know, you want a product that has a customer base that's really, really happy with the product that is pumped on it, that's going to be bummed out if it went away. And even if their top of funnel is kind of slowly chugging along, if their customers are extremely happy and aren't likely to go anywhere, that's a really good sign too. These are a lot of things, but you should be picky. I've kind of realized that too, is like jumping at opportunities is great and it'll get you to where you want to go faster than just like sitting there hoping it'll fall in your lap. But at some point, times you have to think about like, where is this taking me and kind of look out for yourself, but at the same time, understand how a, taking one opportunity or another could accelerate you to a specific goal you're going towards, not just, oh, I can't wait for this company to IPO because like that might not happen. Totally. I think the average person should be way pickier for where they go. You know, obviously if it's your first job, you need to make sacrifices to learn and get experience. And that's, that's what you should do. But I think as time goes on, especially in this fully remote environment where anyone can, or, you know, it's starting to be a fully remote environment where people can kind of work anywhere and companies have opened up the lenses in terms of looking for talent. I think you'd be crazy not to be picky because Mm -hmm. if you look at it, the average, what is it like the average VP of marketing changes their job every 16 months. And sometimes they change it because it's not the right fit for them. And sometimes the company makes a change because it's not the right fit on the other side. And so I think getting good at picking is like a huge thing that you can control. You can't control what happens down the road. Companies change and markets change and funding runs out and all that kind of stuff. But if you do a really good job picking, then you've kind of done everything that you can do to optimize you know, your situation. And in general, I think if you go into any new job with something that you're hoping to get out of it, like some learning or some mentor that you're excited to work with who's there or some new go-to-market model that you haven't experienced yet, but you think could be really interesting to learn more about, it's kind of a win either way. Mm -hmm. And I just think you should go into it with intent. 
Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And I've noticed I've noticed that too. And I'm on when I'm on LinkedIn, I see like people, especially at the senior level, it's like, wow, they were only at that company for nine months, 10 months, 12 months, or whatever. Is that a bad thing? Is that a good thing? Is it not a thing at all? Like what what's your opinion about how fast the the kind of tenure is of marketers? I think it just shows how tough it is. Like, man, I was talking to someone about this the other week, mentor of mine, who was saying, I, I was asking him like, hey, what is your take on this? Because they've had the title, you know, the CMO. And he said, marketing has gotten so wide that I think it is unrealistic for one person to have the skill set that makes them successful at the C level or v, you know, VP of marketing level, right? You've got you know, marketing has got 20 different components now and it's growing, I feel like daily and the new skills are being layered on and you've got to be a brand guru and you've got to be a go-to-market expert and you've got to understand the performance marketing details. Like at any given meeting, any person is going to ask you an in-the-weeds question on one of those. And if you can't answer it relatively quickly, it doesn't look good. And Mm. so I think what could be interesting is I, I feel like the future, well, a future according to this mentor of mine, is almost like multiple VPs of marketing, where you can kind of think about it like, I'm going to get a VP of brand marketing. I'm going to get a VP of demand gen. I'm going to get somebody who's like a VP of community, so to speak. You know, it depends what your company needs, how wide you want to go there, but you can get multiple of them. And then with their powers combined, you sort of have every base that's covered. And certainly they can have one manager, you know, who's like your VP of marketing, C-level marketer, but that that's like a way easier model than having one person who's responsible for all the strategic and operational decisions. I just think it's really, really tough. So that's my take. I don't know if it's good or if it's bad. My take is just that it's really tough and it's getting tougher. I don't see it getting any easier. <laughs> uh, it's a tough gig, man. It really is. Yeah, I can imagine. What you've We've talked about, we've kind of hinted at the idea of having mentors or whatever word you want to use to describe someone to, that you kind of learn from. How have you done that in your career and and what advice would you have for people in finding people that they can look up to? I've had three amazing mentors in my career. All of them kind of fell into my life and I just grabbed them, basically. Two of them were managers early on. My first manager that I ever had was an exceptional guy, an amazing role model. And I've stayed in touch with him for years and years later on. Just taught me a lot about being a leader. I didn't know it but that's what he was teaching me at the time. And just taught to me about how to work with other people and how to treat people and try to be my same self when someone's watching and when someone isn't watching, you know, a lot of those little things that I think, you know, we got to give credit to other people and all of the things that I think are really overlooked by a lot of people. So an early manager of mine, and then I had a manager much later who was the one that gave me the feedback about presenting and telling the stories and things like that. But he was a few layers, uh, levels beyond mine career-wise, and he just liked teaching. And so he's someone that I've stayed in touch with over the years and someone I reach out to when I get stuck. And I mean, I, I tell him that like, you know, I, I, that he's a mentor and that I really value his opinion. And I don't really give much back to him other than like my gratitude and my thanks. And I think a lot of mentors like to give back and like to help other people in the ways that they were helped. And then the one that I didn't work with that was really interesting is we actually interviewed someone uh, a long time ago for a VP of marketing role who didn't get the job, who's just like an exceptional person. And I've stayed in touch with them over the years and I've asked them for a ton of advice 
and they've stayed kind of stayed in my life and continued to give on. And so I think the way that you find a mentor is you look for someone who's been where you are hoping to go or someone that has skills that you want to layer on, right? Even if they're not in your discipline, you can still learn a lot from them. And you let them know what you're looking for. I think you just be upfront about it. I think people feel good about giving back because someone has helped them along the way. And you have respect for their time, I think is maybe like the most important final piece, making sure that when, if you're going to meet them for a coffee or a virtual beer or whatever it is, that you've got stuff prepared and you've got an outcome that you're hoping to explore with them or advice that you're looking to get. And I think that those are like three great foundational pieces to, to kind of help kick off a good relationship. That's awesome. And, and then just to get a little bit more kind of tactical, how do you get the most from these relationships? So when I work with folks, it's often people who are in a growth role at an early stage company with a little bit of experience, but that are the most senior growth person at their company. And so they know what they need. They just need someone to bounce ideas off of, someone to sanity check, someone to point out their flat sides, someone to stress test their plans, someone to help teach them some soft skills that would help them level up that they haven't thought about yet. And so when I work with folks, what I often do is talk to them about outcomes. What outcome are you working towards right now? And how important is that to you? And we'll talk about those things. And then we'll try to break it up into actionable steps And my approach is I try to ask them a lot of questions to break things down into like core principles. Hey, here's your strategy. Why is this the thing that you're pursuing? How much weight do you give this problem that you're hyper-focused on? When we look at it compared to the other five problems that are on your list, do you feel like it's the same or do you just get excited about it because you know a little bit more about the background and some of those types of questions? So what I really try to do is I just try to break things into core principles and put them back together with frameworks and ask a whole bunch of questions to ideally help teach the person how to find the right answer versus just tell them the right answer. Although like different people need different things. Yeah. So I always start every session by saying, what's the main outcome we're working towards here today? And then we just try to loop back on it. Awesome. That's super helpful. So if you're looking for someone who to, to riff with or get more uh, in-depth about specifics of growing a career, delivering value, .co is where you can find Andrew's whole whole world. He's got podcast episodes. He's got a course. He's got consulting. You can talk to him through there. That's the best place. But make sure to also hit him up on LinkedIn. He's got some really great, uh, really great writer and posting a lot of good stuff. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Andrew. This has been awesome. Yeah, man. Had a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.